Welcome to Four Scores. I'm your host, John Burlingame. This podcast series brings together the most accomplished film and television composers and reveals the emotional journeys, inspirations, and unique challenges of their work. So today we're talking with Emmy-winning, Grammy-nominated composer Chris Bowers about his scoring of Mrs. America, the FX series exclusively on Hulu, and he reveals for us the unique challenges he faced while finishing the music in quarantine here in Los Angeles, his hometown. Chris, a lot of us uh, are fans of yours from such TV projects as Dear White People and When They See Us and from your movie Green Book. And we want to talk today about your most recent project. But let's start by talking a little bit about your background, your musical education and how you wound up in the film and TV realm. Yeah, for sure. My parents put me in music. I mean, they decided they wanted me in music before I was even born. They're not musicians, but they just thought that it would be good for me. And so they put me in piano lessons when I was maybe four or five and then kind of continued. But my dad was a writer for film and TV shows like What's Happening and Keenan and Kel. And movies were always a big deal in our house. So I really fell in love with film music pretty early on. And I actually told my parents when I was like 12 that I wanted to go to school for jazz piano and then find a way to transition into film scoring at some point. I just kept telling anybody that would listen that I wanted to be a film composer. What was it about film music that attracted you? I think that, honestly, piano for me was really first and foremost about expressing how I felt. I think that's also why jazz was uh, such a turning point for me, because I started with classical music, but getting me to practice was a bit difficult for my parents. (laughs) And so I started to take jazz lessons and I think being able to improvise, being able to express myself, getting my ear to be a bit better so now I'm learning pieces off of the radio, it really helped me link my musicality to my feeling, to my emotion. And I think that's something that I immediately recognized with film music is that I could listen to these scores outside of the context of the film and still feel something like there were so many times where I could remember being in my backyard listening to the score from Indiana Jones or to Jurassic Park and feeling like I was still in that movie for me with piano anytime that I felt an emotion that I couldn't really express um, I would just sit at the piano and play for a while and kind of work through those feelings and so I started to realize oh that must be why I love film music so much and why it's something that I want to do is something that is really what connected me to music in the first place. Sure. And of course, that's exactly what you need in film and TV music is a way to express emotion. Right, right. I think for many of us, the first time we noticed your name was on Dear White People for Netflix, which also seemed to tap into your jazz background a little bit. And at the same time, allowed you to write the dramatic music that you're talking about. Tell us about that experience. At the time, I had already been up for a handful of TV shows that I just wasn't getting because I didn't have the resume to back it up. And this show, they asked me to submit a demo and they sent a Spotify playlist of like 100 songs that range from Daft Punk to Sonny Rollins to Ravel. And they gave me the show Bible and they asked me to write a piece of music inspired by that. And so I wrote this piece of music that fused all of those things together. And that was the thing that I think gave the show's creator the, the confidence to know that I could handle how he wanted to score the project. That first cue that I wrote as my demo was more of a fusion. Like it had 808s in there and jazz elements, but then there was also this fugue that was happening underneath that. So all these different layers that were happening at the same time. And he kind of explained to me on the first meeting that he wanted each 
style of music to be as pure as possible. So traditional classical music or traditional jazz music, which is not what I did in that demo, but that demo made him feel confident that I at least had an understanding of both worlds. And then Green Book, which has been a huge credit on your resume, would end up won the Oscar for Best Picture. Yes. Which must be a source of some great pride to you. <laughs> but this wasn't just writing a score. Right. You were on this project from the beginning. Yeah. You know, first having to learn all the Don Shirley music, and they actually entrusted me to look at which songs I wanted to pick. You know, and they had their suggestions as well, and Mahershala listened to his whole catalog and had his suggestions as well. Mahershala Ali, of course, who starred in the film. Yes. And then from there, this was maybe three months before they started shooting, I had to um, learn all of that stuff, transcribe it, and then re-record it, and then write it out so that we could spend time teaching Mahershala. And in those three months, I also gave Mahershala piano lessons, and then we shot after that. It's an unbelievable job, really. I mean, teaching piano to an actor, that alone <laughs> would have been a full-time gig. What's really cool about it is how amazing he was. I just immediately had so much respect for him to learn an instrument and look like you are a master at it. The first lesson we had, it was only supposed to be an hour. It lasted three hours. And he mainly played a C major scale for three hours. And he just was a machine. He just would keep doing it until he like ingrained it in himself. And after the first month, we were already looking at some of the simple melodies that he could catch and talking more about trying to focus on the choreography of it all for him to understand where his hands should be on the piano at certain spots. And I recorded myself playing and sent him videos. When we were on set, I would go to his dressing room and set up a keyboard and play in front of him over and over again so he could just watch me and internalize it. That's incredible. It must have been very gratifying to... Actually, I believe you were actually on stage when the Best Picture <laughs> yeah. uh, was announced and you all sort of went up there. That must have been tremendously gratifying for you as an artist and as a collaborator. Yeah, it really was. I mean, you know, to be honest, the whole reason why I got involved in that project, beyond being a fan of everybody involved, but I think one of the bigger reasons for me as an artist was wanting to represent this man's music. Well, let's talk about your latest project, Mrs. America. Uh, this is a nine-episode miniseries about the battle to pass the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s. What attracted you to this project? Again, the people involved and what it was talking about. I've always just been inspired by projects that deal with social justice issues. And the other thing that really made me fall in love with it was how they treated Phyllis Schlafly because I felt like from the first episode really you are almost rooting for Phyllis Schlafly. You want her to win or succeed until the very end when you realize oh she's actually kind of the antagonist of this whole thing. I think storytelling like that is brilliant to understand the people that we don't like or we don't agree with you know and to remember that they are humans going through you know some of the same life experiences that we're going through and that just adds a little bit of depth and complexity to them as characters. I knew from reading the script that it was going to be kind of a joy to write music for the project and treat Phyllis specifically with a very human sensibility and, and to be very careful about how we're painting her emotionally with music to make sure that we're not being too biased, which I think is such a, a tough job, but when it's done right, it really makes for um, impactful TV. And of course, Phyllis is just one of several major 1970s figures here. I mm -hmm. mean, there are people like uh, Shirley Chisholm 
and mm. Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug. Did you need to write themes for characters, for people, or was it more general or more mood-driven? How did that come about? It was a bit of both. Uh, we started with the two sides. So my first pitch to them really was, what if we have a sound for the Phyllis Schlafly stop ERA side that sounds a bit more traditional? It was inspired by Battle Hymn of the Republic. There's a lot of snare drum, a lot of traditional orchestral elements, and things that feel a bit more quote-unquote American. And also trying to add some sort of modern element to it. We put different delays on different sections. So there are like these undulating patterns that are created from the delays that are happening. And a lot of the writing is mathematical. And there's just a lot of very specific rhythms and polyrhythms that are all locking together to create these, these engines. And then on the feminist side, I was looking at specifically this, this song called Move On Over, a protest version of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And the version that I was listening to and some of the other music I was listening to just had that kind of quintessential protest sound. A lot of guitar, like found percussion sounds. So the the first iteration of the feminist side of the score was all like hand claps, uh, found percussion, tambourine. And then also the other thing I thought was to add more synthetic elements to the feminist side because the 70s in my mind is also the beginning of synth. It's very subtle, but there's just a bit more to, to that score. That's fascinating. There are also a lot of songs in this production, and the music supervisor, Mary Ramos, is, is pretty famous for being Quentin Tarantino's music supervisor. Yeah. Did you work with Mary, or did you work with the filmmakers on where there would be score and where songs might be better played? Yeah, well, Mary was really involved, especially early on. She was primarily trying to help us find the sound. I wrote cues that weren't really feeling right sonically or didn't feel like the right identity, and she was really great at trying to translate between the producers and myself what it is that they were looking for, what it is that maybe was right about what I'd written and what needed a bit more work. As we got later in the season, there were a lot of source cues that I ended up writing. Um, And so she was really helpful with trying to figure out how we can try to go for a bit of a era-appropriate sound in some of the songs and then sometimes something that's a little bit closer to the score. But as far as the creative side of it, she was really involved in trying to um, just help make sure the sound of the score was what we wanted. So it sounds like the time frame here did not really influence the score, but clearly influenced some of the source music that you'd be writing that we'd be hearing in the background. Exactly, yeah, yeah. There's very subtle influences from the time, but there are definitely a few of those source cues that are as period-appropriate as possible. That's kind of interesting. You know, these days, usually source music is largely licensed and chosen by the music supervisor. Why did they need you to write source music that would remind us of where and when we were? I think a lot of times it was just, you know, the songs weren't cutting right. Like one scene in particular I'm thinking of, there's this montage that happens in episode 107, or 106 actually. I think they needed to have something that just felt like it fit a bit more like a glove to the picture. There was something about the source cue that they liked that they chose, but it still wasn't really hitting everything perfectly. So they figured if we can just get some sort of inspiration from that and then try our best to craft it to the scene as perfectly as possible. I'm always curious when I see the name of an actor listed as a producer on a show, 
And in this case, Kate Blanchett is both star and executive producer. Did she have any role in determining the musical direction? Not with the score, or at least not that I was aware of, but with some of the pre-records she did, there were a couple moments where her son plays piano, and there are a couple scenes where she even plays piano with him. And some of those pieces, she was actually specific with some ideas of what she might want to try. And whenever I sent the arrangements, she was pretty specific about wanting small things changed or, or wanting to make sure she had the sheet music so she could learn it with a piano instructor. So that was kind of where she was most involved, at least on the music side for me. Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores Playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including Chris Bauer's score for Mrs. America, streaming exclusively on FX on Hulu. The Four Scores Playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the music you love whenever you want. Watch Mrs. America on FX on Hulu and listen to the soundtrack wherever music is enjoyed. I know you were working on the score where the coronavirus emergency hit. And I'm sort of curious, how far had you gotten on the score? And can you talk about how you managed to finish without being able to assemble musicians on a scoring stage? So we were just about halfway through with episode seven when we had to shut down. I don't even really remember. It always just kind of felt like a bit of a whirlwind, but it felt like we weren't really going to stop. We we're going to try to figure out how we could finish it all. And so I first called um, Peter Rotter, my contractor, and he helped me get together a list of musicians that had recording equipment at home and even musicians that maybe didn't and wanted to get some for this time. And then my mixing engineer, Steve Kay, he was also incredibly integral in helping each of these musicians decide which mics to use or how to mic their space. You know, most of these people, I think, have done at-home recordings before, so they were pretty comfortable. But we also weren't able to record with as many musicians as we had previously because I think we had maybe like 25 or so musicians during the scoring sessions previously. And so now that we're doing this smaller iteration we would have maybe like five string players, but then have some of them, like the violins, record three layers, but then record once in mutes, uh, record once a little bit further away. So then it would just give a little bit of variation in each of the layers that they're giving us, having section leaders record first, or at least like things that are uh, incredibly integral to the track record first. A lot of times we would record strings first and Brian Kilgore played a lot of the percussion on there and we would send him these tracks so that he's now re recording to the live instruments as opposed to the MIDI instruments. But the string players were recording to the MIDI percussion just because that might help a bit more with locking everything in. So it was really just trying to figure out what the assembly line protocol essentially was going to be and how long that would all take because now instead of us being able to finish in a three-hour session, now this takes a couple of days to be able to get through all of this music. And we would also send it to all the musicians and give them a few days to turn it around. That way they can record at their leisure whenever they have time and then get it back to us. And then Steve K, my engineer, would mix it all together. Sometimes we would add a little bit of the MIDI in there as well for some of the bigger cues that just needed a bit of help. But other than that, we just used 
exactly what we got from them and mixed it the same way we would a normal session. I think the thing that's really incredible about it is sometimes I would speak to them while they're recording or sometimes they would send me something as soon as they did a take so I could listen to it and give them notes. But a lot of times these musicians are recording by themselves just because we wanted to give them the flexibility of schedule. And that requires a lot of trust to make sure that they're going to um, bring as much musicality as is necessary to each of these cues when you're playing just your part by yourself in your room. It can be a little uninspiring. But I think that Especially given the time, I feel like everybody was just so excited to still be making music and still creating that everybody really just brought their A-game to it. So basically, for the last half of Part 7 and for all of Parts 8 and 9, yeah. what we will be listening to when we when we hear these episodes is actually, it is live musicians, but they're all recording in their own homes and you guys are combining it all later. Yes, yeah, exactly. How complicated is that mixing process? It's funny, I mean, Steve, my, my mixing engineer, is the, the guy that primarily was mixing these things, but it didn't feel like it changed time at all. You know, I think one of the things that he was probably a little annoyed with me about is that having more isolation meant that I was even more eager to find ways to use that. So even though we have a different delay on the celli and the basses than we have on the higher strings or having a different delay on the strings than we do the woodwinds, at some point... It gets a little blurred because everybody's in the same space. But now we're recording everybody separately. So if I want to put a different delay on each individual string instrument, I can do that if I want. There is a little bit of more time because of things like that. I was just kind of playing with having the separation. But other than that, it actually still felt pretty normal. I think the musicians, there's more time on that end. If we went into a studio, we would record there and then that studio would send those files to us to mix and we'd have to sort through all those files, clean everything up, pick the takes and all that kind of stuff and then mix it. But then having these musicians record themselves, they're the ones that are setting up their sessions. They're the ones that are like cleaning any takes that need to be cleaned up and then bouncing everything down and exporting stems to us. So a lot of the work is falling on them and it's really incredible that these musicians that are great players also have the technical ability to be able to engineer themselves for this. And that was a big help. One of the things that I am terribly impressed with is the fact that you might easily have been able to finish these scores entirely in your studio using samples and synthesizers. Sure. But your filmmakers maybe felt like we needed the, the touch, the sound, the feel of real musicians playing real instruments. Uh, did you convince them? Or did they want that? Uh, a bit of both. I think that one thing we realized early on when I was writing some of the mock-ups, it wasn't as organic maybe as they wanted. And I explained to them a lot of that's going to be, you know, having real musicians play these things. <laughs> It'll sound better. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And once they heard that difference, I think they realized the value of having live musicians just because it was night and day. And so moving um, to the COVID quarantine they were the ones that immediately were like, we want to try to figure out how we do that. And it looked to me to try to figure out how we could make that feasible. For me, I also felt like it was incredibly important. I have so many friends that aren't working right now. Even musicians that are usually touring musicians that now are at home that I feel lucky to be able to call to have them record on things and play on things. And so it was important just for us to keep these people working that had already been really establishing the sound of this. 
Chris, we're only about two months into this whole lockdown phase of the pandemic. What do you think will happen with film and TV scores in the coming months? We probably are going to have more scores that take advantage of this uh, separation and maybe get a little bit more creative with the way that we produce things. I just also finished the next Madden video game and re-recorded that similarly where we recorded brass one player at a time and that score was originally going to have a lot more orchestra to it and it became a bit more of a production uh, based score i started really treating the sound of each instrument as well because i figured we're not going to be going for that traditional orchestral sound so instead of trying to record players separately and then fake that or, or try our best to capture that it might make more sense to put my like hip hop producer head on and take these sounds that we get and mess with them and use them as samples instead of trying to make them sound like an orchestra. And you have people that are continuing to try to figure out how to be creative in that way. And I think that will affect the sound of scores for a little while. I think that there are people that are looking at recording in Iceland or recording in Budapest. And that's definitely a possibility as well, especially because at some point, you know, when you need a large ensemble, you might need to go to another place to do that. But I think that I'm really excited by the idea of keeping our musicians in this city working with as much of a creative way as possible. You, you mentioned your hip-hop hat a second ago. I, I did want to ask you, another aspect of your career has been collaborating with, you know, some pretty famous artists from Jay-Z and Kanye West to Ludacris and Q-Tip and others. How does that side fit into your overall musical career? I love finding ways of creating parallels or at least connections between these different sides of my creativity it's been um, really fun and helpful for some of the projects that I'm working on now because the sound that we're trying to go for is finding a way to fuse this orchestral sound with more of a modern hip-hop production. And it's the first time that I really feel like I'm working hard to combine those in a way that feels as respectful to each as possible. Sometimes you might have a hip-hop production where the, the orchestral side of it's not paid attention to as much or isn't as in-depth or vice versa. But the other thing I've found is that it's it's not too different. There are times where I'm writing just orchestral music and I hear hip-hop in my head. Even though I might not ever produce it fully out, the way that I hear this music has more of a hip-hop feel to it. And that that's the same even when I... They're like Steve Reich records that I listen to that I feel that way about or like Bernard Herman things that I listen to and I'm like that sounds like a sample and, <laughs> and and if there were a beat under it it would feel that way and so sometimes I'm writing music especially for Mrs. America actually there are a couple of cues I'm thinking about a cue at the end of episode one for example where the way the celli their their part and the way it locks up with the bass and the way it locks up with the violas it's a very weird part by itself but I was thinking about how would this sound if it were produced where each instrument was treated a bit more like a sample in a in a hip-hop production. And so it just made me approach the way that I orchestrated it a little bit differently and the way that I create these like interlocking rhythms a little differently. You know, you listen to a hip-hop piece and, and a lot of times the average person is going to think that it's just a loop. But the best producers 
people like Hudson Mohawk or DJ Dahi or Jahan Sweet, like those producers are through composing. Like the thing is always changing. I, I had a conversation with Teddy Riley about his production and he was saying that every part is played live. It's playing every single, like the tambourine part is played live through the entire track. And having that type of approach, it feels very similar to composing because now I'm looking at the snare part with the same level of specificity as I would look at the viola part where you know this snare part needs to feel like it's constantly moving it's constantly responding to what's happening in the picture and I'm just looking at this snare part the way that I would just look at a single part in the orchestra and so I think trying to find the similarities has has been really helpful for my creative process. I think it's fascinating, and it's a great reminder that it's all music. Yeah. yeah it's not just sure. jazz or just classical or just hip-hop. You know, it's all music. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's all just expressing a feeling. So how are you passing the time? Are you busy writing? What's this pandemic quarantine period been like for you? Uh, it, it hasn't slowed down. If anything, it's gotten much busier. We finished Mrs. America. We also finished the show Black Monday and then also the Madden video game as well. And then I'm working on three features right now. And so I'm um, every day just kind of bouncing back and forth between all these projects. And I think with the features, everybody's at home. This feels like the time to, to focus on the music and to try to find sounds and experiment and play. So I think on one level, there isn't the pressure, at least with the films, of um, finishing in a specific amount of time. But then um, other than that, it's, it's, it's still pretty busy. <laughs> oh, that's great. Chris, thanks again. It's been great to talk with you. Yeah, same here, John. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Four Scores. Please subscribe and make sure to share this episode with your music-loving friends. It'd also be great if you can rate it because that really helps others find the series. See you next time.